So it's a, a while. Uh, we're, we're up to chapter four in the book of Philippians, and we're going to look at the first half of that chapter tonight. So uh, we'll have a retrospective on chapter three in a minute, just to remind us of where we've got to. But uh, let's just start reading from chapter four and verse one. Here we go. Therefore, my brothers, you whom I long, love and long for, my joy and crown, that is how you should stand firm in the Lord, dear friends. That's looking back at all of the advice he's given in chapter 3 and saying, there you are, you see, that's how you do it. This is how you stand firm. And then, I plead with Euodia, I plead with Syntyche, to agree with each other in the Lord. Yes, and I ask you, loyal yoke fellow, help these women who have contended at my side in the cause of the gospel, along with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again. Rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. And finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Whatever you've learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put it into practice and the God of peace will be with you. Okay, those are the verses that we're supposed to be looking at tonight. Let's just have a quick look back at chapter 3 um, uh, and remember, remind ourselves of what uh, it said. First of all, it was always rejoicing, wasn't it? This is one of the things that Paul uh, repeats as advice again and again throughout Philippians. Rejoice, rejoice, rejoice. And he says, it's, it's no problem to me to say the same thing again and again. Even if I sound like a parrot, I don't mind because it's good for you. It's safe for you. It's a safeguard for your Christian life. The more you rejoice in God, the more you celebrate what you've got, the relationship that you have with God, the safer you are. Why? Well, we said that was probably because relationships die when they're taken for granted. Once you start taking somebody whom you love for granted, that relationship soon loses its shine, doesn't it? You need to celebrate. You need to send one another anniversary cards. You need to go out for evenings together. You need to do things to make that relationship still means something to you, don't you? And the more you celebrate it, the more you amaze yourself just at the wonder of, of what you've got, then the more live it stays. And we said this uh, chapter 3 too, uh, gives us all sorts of things to decide about. It talks about two things you could rely on, two things you could aim at, and two things you could hope for. The two things you could rely on, well, that's giving you a choice of either trusting the qualifications you have already or knowing Christ. Because Paul says, I don't want just to trust on the fact that, you know, I'm a good Jewish boy and I keep all the laws and do the right things. That would be just trusting my qualifications. I want to go beyond that. I don't want just to sit around thinking, well, I must be all right with God because I've ticked that box and I've ticked that box and I've ticked that box. No, I want to know Christ in reality. I don't want it all to be happening in my head. I want it to be something that's real. And so knowing Christ it says, he says, means knowing the power of his resurrection, knowing the same power working in me that brought Jesus back to life out of the grave. It means knowing the fellowship of his sufferings. It means being prepared to be treated by this world as Jesus was treated. That means I won't have, always have an easy time because this world didn't 
understand my master and it persecuted him. So it won't understand me either and I'll be in for my share of suffering. It means knowing the likeness of his death as well. Beginning to realize that you need to die to yourself. You need to die to your own agenda simply to do the things that you know are right and you know are profitable in the end. And that's what I want. And if you do that, then you attain to the resurrection from the dead. One of these days, you will see your victory over death and uh, the grave, which was, was won by Jesus on the cross, becoming real in your own experience. There are also two things you could aim at, and he talks about either sitting still or pressing forward. And he says, I am pressing towards the mark for the prize of the high calling of God, Christ Jesus. You forget what's behind, you strain forward what's ahead, you press on towards the goal. And then finally, he talked about two things you could hope for as you look to the future. He talks about people who claim to be Christians who, he says their destiny is destruction because their God really is their stomach. They might say all the right Christians, but actually they're living for themselves just to satisfy their appetites and their glory is in their shame. They're heading in exactly the wrong direction. So you could be like them or you could be something else. And the question he asks at the end of the chapter is whose citizen are you? Our citizenship, he says, if we're real Christians, is in heaven. And you remember, that's uh, thinking a little bit about what the Philippians actually were. They were a colony of Rome in the middle of Greece, 780 miles from Rome. Uh, it would take from six weeks to three months to travel from the one to the other, but it was like a little Rome. When you got there, everybody was wearing Roman dress and speaking Latin. Because Philippi had been settled by people who had been given land by the emperor and they thought of themselves not as Greeks but as Romans. <laughs> it's a bit like, I remember the first time, I was talking this morning about being a student in Oxford. I remember the first time I went to see Cambridge. The only way you could do it in those days was by a bus that you got on in Oxford. It travelled way across the countryside, right across the face of England until it landed in Cambridge. And when you got off at Drummer's in Cambridge, you were in the same place you'd started from. But I say, you know, historic buildings, students that looked exactly the same, the same kind of atmosphere around the place. And it's because, I suppose, Oxford and Cambridge have had this connection for hundreds and hundreds of years. And so the one place reflected the other. In the same way, Philippi reflected Rome because it was kind of like a little Rome somewhere else. And Paul says, if you're a Christian, you're a citizen of heaven. And around you should reflect the atmosphere of heaven. People should see in you the values and the standards and the beauty and the glory of Jesus Christ himself. You're a subject of a distant king. He may be a long way away from this world. Actually, he's not. He's here all the time, but that's another story. Uh, he may feel a long way away to everybody that's around, around you, but your allegiance is to him. You march to the beat of a different drummer. You're submitted to his authority, and you're waiting for his arrival. He's coming back. And so, he says at the end of chapter 3, as we've already seen, therefore, my brothers, this is how you stand firm in the Lord. And then he thinks, well, standing firm is one thing, but you can actually lose territory if you're not careful. You could be pushed back. I'm sorry to do this again to you, but just with a war going on in Ukraine at the moment, the temptation is to start to be talked with an illustration drawn from Ukraine. It's in our thoughts a lot of the time, isn't it? So here is the map of Ukraine as it stands of the, as of this morning. And you can see the, the red and the pink bits, well, that's where the Russians are. That's what they've taken over already. And uh, as you well know, they thought that within three days they might be able to take Kiev, the capital there in, in the circle up at the top. They didn't manage that. And they've been pushed back to the eastern part of the country because the Ukrainians have stood their ground. They've stood firm. Of course, all the talk at the moment is about this area here. Uh, 
They've taken the city of Severodonetsk. The Ukrainians have retreated strategically from there. But they've retreated saying, we're going to be back. <laughs> we're just doing this for the moment. And the question is whether the Russians can push on now from there uh, and, and take the next city along and close that whole area so they've got that whole part of, of the map all, all closed up. And uh, the next city they're aiming for uh, is up there. And so it looks as if the Ukrainians are losing ground. It's hard to tell what's going on at the moment, though, isn't it? Because the Russians are putting so much firepower into that part of the country, military experts are saying they won't have any shells left to take on anywhere else. And they're losing soldiers at an incredible rate. They're not uh, telling anybody how, how uh, many deaths they've had in their armed forces, but we know it's a lot. They're running out of generals. Uh, there was a story in the paper yesterday about how a 75-year-old general who's been retired for years has been hauled out of retirement and put in a uniform, which had to be specially made because he's now clinically obese. They take five meals a day, apparently, and a bottle of vodka every afternoon. And this is the guy they've sent back to control the, the, the Russian army uh, in the east of Ukraine. It doesn't sound like the number one choice, really, does it? And so they may not be doing very well. And it looks as if Ukraine at least stands a chance of surrounding its ground. But at the moment, in this eastern area, it's losing just a little bit of territory. And so Paul says, in the things he says in this part of chapter 4, it's possible for us to be that way as well. To basically stand firm and yet gradually to lose territory just a bit at a time without realising it. And there are lots of ways in which you can lose ground in the Christian life. And I think here he's, he's talking and the advice he gives about three of them. First of all, you can lose ground in your relationships. You can have problems with people. When you've got on well with people in the past and you allow something to grow up in, that causes a, a root of bitterness to bring up between you so that you're not supporting them and they're not supporting you and you're wasting the energy you would otherwise have on fighting people that you should be one with, then you're losing ground. Second, I think you have to talk about the fact that you can lose ground in your emotions. And it's not problems with people, but problems with peace. Where do you find peace in your life? You can be anxious. You can be worried. You can be scared. You can be distracted. There are all sorts of things that can happen to you and take away the peace and, and, and the equanimity that you're supposed to have. Problems with emotion. And you can lose ground that way too. And then the third way, I think, that he talks about here that you can lose ground is in your ambitions. When you have problems with your priorities. Which things do you put first? What do you focus on in your thinking? What controls your mind? What are you shooting for or aiming for in life? Do you actually have any goals or targets? Or are you just going around in circles and doing nothing? That's the third area. So let's look at those three. First of all, he talks about losing ground in your relationships. And he talks about two women. <laughs> now, they must have been absolutely horrified and mortified when Philippians was first read out. Remember, in those days, it wasn't a letter that was sort of duplicated and a copy was given to everybody in the church. It wasn't that everybody had their own little Bible in which they could read it anyway. It was that somebody came, probably Epaphroditus, whom we met the other week, to the church with a letter and said, I've got a letter from Paul. They call everybody together and say, listen to this, listen to Paul, and he'd start reading it out. And so he's got through chapters 1, 2, and 3, and Iodia and Syntyche are sitting there at opposite sides of the church because they're not talking to one another and they haven't been talking for the last year or so. And they're sitting there just, and, and Yodia's going, yes, yes, Paul is so wise. And Syntyche's going, I agree with that, but yes, that's good. And then suddenly, 
At right at the start of chapter 4, Epaphroditus, or whoever it is, clears his throat and says, <clears throat> I plead with Euodice and Euodia, and I plead with Syntyche to agree with each other in the Lord. And everyone turns around and looks at Euodia. They're not looking at her, they're turning around and looking at Syntyche. And these two ladies go, I've been so insulting all my life. But Paul has nailed them quite deliberately because he knows that there is a problem there. And if you carry on having two women in church who have previously worked together really well because it says uh, uh, they served with me in the cause of the gospel along with Clement, the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life, they were on my team. They were people whom I valued. And now they're at daggers drawn. What is going on? And Paul knows if he doesn't get that sorted out, what will happen is that some will side with one of the women, some will side with the other, and the feud will spread. And in the end, people will not be getting on with one another, and they'll have to be very, very careful to talk to people on the other side, and the whole church's relationships will start to suffer. They'll lose ground. And so, I think in what he says in this little section, there are various bits of advice. The first thing I think he's saying is don't count on the past. You two women, you've both got a great record. You were responsible for the establishing of this church. You worked shoulder to shoulder with me. You have proved it. You, 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 you've, you've paid your dues. Your CV looks brilliant. But you can't rely on anything in the past. It's possible for somebody who's lived a wise and committed Christian life for a long time still to do something silly. <laughs> Foolishness in the human heart never quite goes away. And we're all possible of doing something divisive, something wrong, something that splits up, something that was going really well. And Paul knows about this because, let's face it, he and Barnabas had a brilliant missionary career until they fell out over John Mark. And they had such an argument that the word that's used about it in the book of Acts is paroxysmos, the word from which we get paroxysm, a violent fit. It wasn't just, oh, I disagree with you, Brother Barnabas. Well, it hurts me to hear that, Brother Paul, but let's just shake hands and disagree. It wasn't that for me. It was, a, it was an absolute fight. And Paul goes to his cost. How possible it is for people who are even mature Christians to let their relationships disintegrate to such an extent that they lose ground and the gospel goes backwards instead of forwards. And so he says, don't count on the past. Don't rely on what you've been in the past. Where you are now is what really counts. And there's no good in thinking, well, I've done this. I'm a mature Christian. I've been around for a long time. I've obviously got it right. No, you haven't. Don't count on the past. Second, don't let things fester. It's pretty clear that this relationship breakdown between Euodia and Syntyche had been going on in the church for some time. And nobody had really been addressing it. And you have to address those things. Or, 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 or something, you know, things go wrong. I re well remember, I hope nobody at Belmont ever hears this, but my first ever uh, meeting of the elders at Belmont Chapel, when I'd just been appointed, um, was uh, one night when they were discussing a problem uh, about, uh, about uh, a, a, a woman and a man in the church who were falling out with one another. You see, the woman was the man's son-in-law. He had married her daughter, and the marriage had split up. I can't judge what went on, but it seems to me that he was less to blame than his wife was. However, that's not the way that mother-in-law saw it. And she had her knife into this guy. And it would seem that almost every Sunday morning, they would sit at opposite sides of the church, and then on the way out, they would meet at the church door, and she would start tearing into him and calling all the names on, on earth. And 
they were very, the, the elders were sort of saying, what do we do about this? What do we do about this? We, mu we must, and they were, they were try trying to work out if there were ways of getting him to come to one service and her to come to another. I wasn't even an elder. I'd just been appointed to work for the church. And I was just observing these elders' meetings. And they, suddenly they turned around to me and said, John, what would you do? I said, well, you can't let this go on in the church, can you? Something's got to be done. Somebody's got to address it. Somebody's got to talk to the people concerned. And if you really think Mrs. I won't mention her name, is, is, is doing something really wrong, you've got to go and talk to her about it. And there was this long silence. I remember Charles Sims, who was the, 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 the sort of doyen of the elders. He'd been, he was a retired elder, an elder emeritus, because he'd been there for years and years. Charles suddenly raised his head and said, Mrs. So-and-so has been a pain in the neck for the last 20 years. He said, I vote we do something about it. And you know what? They went and talked to her, and she didn't come to church anymore. She simply transferred somebody else. Now, that's not an ideal solution, but at least it took the problems away. And her son-in-law was so grateful, he really started to throw himself into the, the work of the church. He became a deacon, and he had a, a pretty fruitful time with Belmont uh, before the time came for him to move on. But you see, what was happening was nobody was addressing it. We were all looking the other way and just letting it happen. And it wasn't until somebody did something about it. I'm not claiming great wisdom for myself because I think anybody could, could have created that solution. But until something is address it, addresses it, the problem just goes on getting worse, doesn't it? So don't let things fester, says Paul. Third thing is don't shut yourself away. Because he, he tries to get somebody else involved here, doesn't he? Yes, I ask you, loyal yoke fellow, help these women who have contended at my side in the cause of the gospel. Now, who's he talking to? Well, the word is Sisygus, so that might be the guy's name. Is there a man called Sisygus in the church in Philippi who would be good at stepping in between Euodia and Syntyche, perhaps because he's treated by both of them and he's able to bring them together? Well, we don't know because the word Sisygus also means yoke fellow. So that might just be a, way, a flowery way of referring to somebody else. Who? Well, it might be Epaphroditus because we know that he's just come back with this letter to the Philippines and he's treated by them and he's a well-known member of the church. But we really don't know who this person is. We just know that Paul is saying, you, get involved. Step in and help them because they can't do this on their own. You see, Euodia shut herself away from, 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 from Syntyche in bitterness, saying, that woman, I will never speak to her again. And Syntyche has shut herself away from Euodia, saying, if I have to talk to her in heaven, that will be too soon. And they're just shutting themselves into a little compartment. Somebody needs to bust those walls apart and get them talking to one another again. So don't shut yourself away. If there's a problem like that, take the first step. Go and talk about it. Say, look, there's something wrong between us. We need to sort this out. And even if you get rebuffed, you'll have made the attempt and it will possibly soften things up for next time you try. But you've got to make that uh, attempt to reach across the gap. So that's the third thing. And the fourth thing I think that Paul says here is don't expect instant magic. <laughs> what do I mean? Well, he says to the yoke fellow, whoever he is, try to help these two. He's not saying, go in there and sort it out. I want it sorted out at nine o'clock tomorrow morning. No, he's saying, go and help. Because relationship problems are big, aren't they? They take a while to sort out. There needs to be a healing. There needs to be a letting go of the bitterness. There needs to be a, a relaxing of the memories. There needs to be all sorts of things going on. And sometimes that can take some time. You can't necessarily do it straight away. But Paul realizes that if you let relationship problems grow in a church like that, then the church is going to get uh, worse. You are losing ground. 
somebody once said that a church has two kinds of problems. The first kind of problems are structural problems. <laughs> and you can go on with structural problems for years and years and years. Structural problems are things like, well, we don't have anybody really who takes charge of the services, or oh, we, we haven't worked out yet um, uh, uh, who's going to open the door on a Sunday morning. You know, there can be all sorts of things that, that happen. We haven't got a youth leader. We don't do this. We can't do that. And structural problems, if everybody's got a goodwill, can be got over. And you can go on with them for years and years. But relationship problems, they're the other sort of problem. And if you let relationship problems go, they will kill off the church very quickly. Uh, David Knowles, who was uh, the chairman of our, our, our leadership team at Belmont Chapel for many years, always used to say to us again and again in leadership team meetings, always remember, this church is only ever two weeks away from closing down. <laughs> and that might seem pessimistic, but it's realistic. It's the way it is. Relationship problems can be absolutely divisive and can kill something off quicker than any other kind of problem you could imagine. So, losing ground in your relationships, that's the first thing. Second thing, though, is losing ground in your emotions. Because Paul says after that, um, well, he says something curious to start with, doesn't he? Uh, he says... Um, Um, let your gentleness be evident to all. Well, actually, first of all, he says what he usually says, doesn't he? And again and again, you've got him saying this thing all the way through Philippians, rejoice, rejoice, rejoice. So he tries it one more time. Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again. And you know, oh, not again, Paul. We got it the first time around. Rejoice. Oh, there he goes again. And he says it and says it and says it. Why does he say it? Because that is the key to keeping your emotions on the right keel. When you rejoice in the Lord, when you're really happy in your relationship with God, first of all, you'll be gentle with other people. A lot of the bitterness we feel, a lot of the one-upmanship that people show with one another is because we're uncertain and unconfident and we're not really rejoicing in God. If I'm rejoicing in my relationship with the Lord, I have no time for bitter thoughts about somebody else and I can treat them gently. Because I will have enough confidence in myself, knowing that God has accepted me, and that's a pretty wonderful thing, that I don't have to be nasty with other people. And I can be gentle. I can treat other people with patience. I can take time over them, because I'm confident and secure in my relationship with God. So, when you rejoice in the Lord, you'll be gentle with others. Second, when you rejoice in the Lord, your anxiety will be dispelled. He says, be anxious about nothing, but in everything, present your requests to God, and the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will uh, um, guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. And so that's the second thing. Your anxiety will go away, and instead of that, you'll know God's supernatural peace. So you say, hey, oh, you see, that's why I keep on going on about rejoicing, because it has all of these positive effects on, on your life. Focus on the fact that, wow, God, you have accepted me. You're my father. I am your child. There is an inheritance stored up for me in heaven. I belong to you. The Holy Spirit is interceding uh, for me with God and making my prayers come into his friend. Jesus Christ himself is interceding in the courts of heaven so that nothing can knock me down. Nothing can defeat me. Uh, if you are for me, nothing can be against me. That is so incredible. The more you think about that, the more these other emotional knots will unknot themselves and you'll see peace come into your life. Now, when you talk about being anxious, I think uh, uh, there are two things he says. The first thing is what you shouldn't do is you should be anxious. 
I think there are, there are some things you've got to say here. First of all, anxiety is not wrong, it's natural. There are some situations in which we will be anxious. I mean, if you are just going in to sit big exams at school or in your career or anything like that, you're going to be sitting outside a room really equally up, aren't you? Nothing's going to stop that. If somebody comes up to you and says, are you, are you anxious about this? And you say, no, 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 I have the joy of the Lord. That's just not real. There are some situations in which you're anxious. When it's 27 minutes past 10, and I know I have to get to Great Parks by, by uh, half past, and King's Ash Road is completely static, I don't feel, hallelujah, Lord, inside. I really don't. I feel anxious. Because anxiety is natural. But uh, I, that's not what he's talking about. The second thing is, anxiety can be a medical condition. Sometimes uh, people get anxious because of things inside them that can be sorted out chemically. If they take the right pills, if they take the right tablets, sometimes people are naturally depressive. Sometimes people are natural warriors. And those things can be dealt with. And I'm not, not denying that by, in, in any way whatsoever. The great preacher Charles Spurgeon in the 19th century, one of the greatest preachers who's ever lived probably, was consumed with depression and anxiety at various points in his life. So when Paul says, be anxious for nothing, he's not saying that all anxiety is sinful. Some of it is just a natural thing. Some of it will be part of a medical condition. But what he is saying is, I think this, you don't have to look at half the picture. You don't have to focus just on the negative things in life and let them work in, up into a, a terrible kind of scenario in your mind. You see, the word that he uses for to be anxious is the word merimnau. <laughs> and this is a word which means properly drawn in opposite directions, divided into parts, figuratively to go to pieces because pulled apart in different directions, like the force exerted, it says here, by sinful anxiety or worry. You don't have to live life so that you're pulled in all sorts of different directions by the things that are happening to you. That's the kind of worry he's talking about. Not the medical kind, which you can solve with an aspirin. Not the natural kind. Which it's something you need to feel. I mean, if you're a football player and you're going out to play in a Champions League final, you'd better be worried. <laughs> you, you know, you'll be really on, 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 on tender hooks, won't you? Because you want to give the best of yourself. You want to do a brilliant performance. On, and that's a good thing. But when you're facing problems in life and you're torn apart by one worry and another worry and you're allowing that to happen to you and instead of focusing on what God's given you and what God has promised you, you're thinking, oh, I, I'm worried about that and I'm worried about that and that might happen and this might happen and that, that's when you're being pulled apart. And that's what Paul means. Don't be pulled apart by the things that are going on in your life because there are things you can do about that which will bring peace instead of the worry that you're talking about. So what should you do? Well, he says, present your requests to God. And the word he uses for requests is this Greek word, aetemata, um, which is uh, used in various places in the Bible. Here's one example, for example, from Luke chapter 23. With loud shouts, they insisted that he be crucified. So Pilate agreed to grant their aetemata, their demand. So an, a, a request here is a demand. It's something you really, really, really want God to do for you. There are other verses where it's used as well. If we know that God hears us, we know that we have what we asked, our itemata of him. Your father knows your itemata that you need before you ask him. So what you present to God, instead of worrying about it, are the problems that are really in your mind, the things that you want God to deal with, the things that you wish weren't there, your requests, your itemata. And what you do with it? Well, there are four things mentioned, aren't there? 
in everything. That's the first thing. Second, by prayer. Third, and petition. What's the difference? Well, we'll see in a moment. And fourth, with thanksgiving. Make your petty matter known to God. So what does that actually mean? Well, let's look at them one by one. First of all, in everything. That means in every circumstance, whatever is going on in your life, whether the skies are blue or whether the skies are black, you still take it all to God. And you don't worry, you just take it to God. I've probably told the story in great parts before. I was trying to remember if I had done, but uh, it's a well-known story anyhow. John Wesley, before he was the great founder of the Methodist Church, before he was even a Christian, was a vicar who was sent out to Georgia in America to minister to the settlers out there. And to cut a long story short, he made a very bad job of it, and he was sent back in disgrace on the boat across to England. And so he was going back to England, and as he says, it was so disconsolate within himself that he, who had had dreams of going out and preaching and converting the Indians, was now being sent back with his tail between his legs to England. Now, the boat, halfway across the Atlantic, got into a dreadful storm. And Wesley had noticed that there were a bunch of Germans on, on the boat. And these Germans had been to America on missionary work. They weren't proper Anglicans, so of course uh, Wesley didn't speak to them, but uh, still. Um, he noticed they were there. And when the storm blew up, what he noticed was that the, the, European, the, 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 the English people and the other Europeans who were on the boat were absolutely panicked. They were running, we're going to die, we're going to die, we're all going to drown. And, and the Germans, who were conducting a Bible study on the ship's deck in the open air, the deck was heaving up and down at this point, and they were getting covered in salt water, but they said, oh, it is a storm. We must pray about this. And so he said, dear Lord, please stop the storm. Now, back to the Bible study. Just carried on with the Bible study. And he couldn't believe us. And uh, afterwards, he said, in the midst of the sun, wherewith their service began, the sea broke over, split the mainsail in pieces, covered the ship, and poured in between the decks as if the great deep had already swallowed us up. A terrible screaming began among the English. <laughs> the English, oh dear. The Germans calmly sung on. I asked one of them afterwards, was you not afraid? He answered, I thank God, no. I asked, but were not your women and children afraid? He replied mildly, no, our women and children are not afraid to die. From them, I went to their crying, trembling neighbors and pointed out to them the difference in the hour of trial between him that feareth God and him that feareth them not. At 12, the wind fell. This was the most glorious day which I have hitherto seen. And that experience so captured Wesley's imagination that he started going to Bible studies in London with these people whom he'd seen on the ship. He just calmly presented the request to God and then got on with life as if nothing was going wrong. And that was basically how he became a Christian and the rest is history. So in everything, whatever the circumstances, you let your request be known to God. Then the next two things are by prayer and by petition. What's the difference? Well, once again, we're talking about the meaning of the words. The word for prayer is prosyuke, and uh, prosyuke is the word that was the hallmark of the first disciples in Acts. When you read about the early Christians, they spent all of their time in prosyuke, in prayer. So it covers all the things that you do normally in your discipleship with God. You pray to him day by day. You keep the conversation going. You meet together with other Christians. It's just a normal procedure of prayer. And the word for um, Petition is a more direct, desperate word, deesai. And that means to beseech or to implore. That's the word it's used in the, the way it's used in the disciples. When somebody comes to Jesus and says, please come and help my daughter, she's sick, you must come right now. It's a much more desperate word. And Philippians says both belong. 
First of all, there's prosuke, the regular ongoing thing. And we need a prayer life that isn't just asking for things. It's not just beseeching and imploring. It's staying in touch with our Heavenly Father just in the normal course of things. It's worship. It's praise. It's, it's, it's telling him everything that's going on in our life. It's, it's just building that relationship on a normal basis. But also, we need the faith to make definite requests into our everyday prayers. We ask for things as well. And those things that are really bugging us, we ask about. And in everything, with prayer and petition, we make sure that God hears our requests. There's one last bit to it, though. In everything, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving. And that is so important. Because when you look back at what God has already done, it increases your faith to asking for more next time. And thanksgiving is always built in to living the Christian life. If you look back in the Old Testament and you look at the way in which the feasts and the festivals are structured throughout the year, you find that throughout the year you've got three times when you've got fellowship offerings, which are voluntary thanksgiving sacrifices. Three times in the year, all of the Jews would say, right, it's time just to give thanks to God and remind ourselves of everything he's given to us. And those three points in the year, the green ones on that wheel, just made the whole of the rest of it come alive. Because you counted up the things that God had given and said, wow, this is incredible. This means we can trust him for still more and more. So that's what uh, Paul's talking about here. And he says, when that happens, what happens is that uh, when you present your request to God, the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, a peace that you don't even understand why you've got it, and you think, I should be panicking. Why am I not panicking? A peace that goes beyond your understanding and will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. And the word he uses for guard is a military word. It means we'll build a fort around your heart and your mind. So your heart and mind are in there. God builds a garrison around it. And the anxiety is on the outside trying to get in and it can't get through the walls. <laughs> That's the way it's supposed to happen. If you just let yourself be pulled apart, you lose ground in your emotions. You may say you believe in God and you may believe in God with your brain and your head. But in your heart... There are fears, there are worries, there are things that are not dealt with. Be anxious for nothing. Be pulled apart by nothing. Just keep on taking it all to God. Then there's a third thing. Losing ground in your ambitions. Because Paul realizes the Philippians have been Christians for a while now, and it's possible they'll lose steam. They'll lose their ambition. And you can see that happening in some people's Christian lives, can't you? They start out as Christian teenagers thinking, I'm going to conquer the world for God. I'm going to be the greatest Christian the world has ever seen. Well, I also want to get a good job and I want to get married and I want to have kids. And they may not actually go downhill, but they plateau. And their great ambitions for God become just a fairly self-satisfied life. And you start living. And he's talked about in chapter 3, their God is their stomach. And sometimes you might wonder idly, wonder why I'm not growing as a Christian. But most of the time you're just wondering, wonder what's new on Netflix this week. <laughs> and you spend your life entertaining yourself. And uh, there are lots of cartoons about that. Yeah, well, that's, that one speaks for itself. <laughs> and that's why the Apostle Paul says, it's important what you think about, what you focus your mind around. And this is the, the verse here, Philippians 4, 8, isn't it? Finally, brothers and sisters. Oh, yes. And he means this phrase, tolipon, as finally this time. Remember at the start of chapter 3, he was just saying, the key thing is, when he used that phrase, he wasn't saying finally, now he is. He's saying, this is the last bit of advice I'm going to give to you in the whole of the letter, and it is desperately important. Finally, at the end of my whole argument, whatever is true, noble, right, pure, lovely, admirable, excellent, praiseworthy, think about such things. So say, focus your thoughts on 
some things that are important. Reckon with these things is what he's literally saying. First of all, he mentions some things. Whatever is true, whatever is awesome, that's what that second word means. Something that really captures your imagination, makes you go, wow, that's just epic. He says, think about those things. Because the more you think about things that really make you staggered, the more you're going to want to do them yourself. Think about what is fair and just. That's the word dikaios. Think about what is uncontaminated. What is pure from every trace of evil. That word hagnos was a word that was used of something that was ready for sacrifice on the altar. Something that was completely pure without any fault or any blemish. Think about things like that. Think what it would be like to live a life like that. Imagine it in yourself. Because the more you think about it, the more likely you are to see how you can make that happen in your own experience too. Think about what's attractive. Now that's a very unusual word because in lists of virtues, it's often talked about what's true and what's awesome and what's fair. They never use this word attractive. And so what Paul is doing here is bringing in a word that means something that draws people in. Something that makes people go, wow. And he's saying, I want you just not to be good people. I want you to be living attractive lives as well. So think about what is it that makes people go, wow, when you see somebody else? What is it that makes... You warm to somebody else. What does it make other people attractive to you? That's what I want to see. Because I want to see you portraying in your life the warmth and the attractiveness and the winsomeness of Jesus himself. And he says also, what's gracious? What's good towards other people? What's giving towards them? What's not selfish? And look at me, look at me, look at me. But is thinking about their needs and the way that you can meet their needs and, and do things for them. Think about all of these things. Whatever is true, awesome, fair, uncontaminated, attractive, gracious. And also, anything else that you can think of that either shows excellence, something that's done really, really well, because you want to live a 100% Christian life, not just an 87 or a 55% Christian life, something that's truly only top form, and second, something that deserves praise. What do other people just go open-mouthed about? What do they spontaneously stand up and give a standing ovation to? That's the kind of life that you need to be thinking about living. And the more you focus on those things, rather than the negative things, bitter thoughts about other people, thoughts about how you've been let down and how you could have done so much more if you'd only had a chance, the more you, you let those thoughts just go because they're rubbish and focus on what you really, really want to be, on how you can make the very, very best out of your living for Jesus in this world, the more you will start to change. This is the uh, Mayday Miner's Procession up in Northumberland some years ago. And the guy who um, is on the banner there, I will tell you straight away, I've forgotten his name. Okay, I knew it this morning, I've forgotten it. But he is somebody who was one of the great trade union leaders of the early century. And that's why his picture's on that banner. He's somebody who grew up in, in, in absolute total poverty and had to work in a mine in the worst possible conditions, exploited by rascally mine owners, and in the end, um, managed to get himself in a position where he with some other people started to form a miners union, and through a combination of strikes and various other agreements with, with, with the, the, the dealers and so on, managed to hammer out a fair deal for mine owners. Now, why did he do that? Why was he not just consumed with bitterness because of the raw deal that life had, had thrown him? It's because this guy, became a Christian early in his life. And he went to a class where uh, uh, some of his friends were going, and one day the guy who led the class just buttonholed him and said, have you ever made a decision for Jesus? He said, no, I haven't. He said, well, would you like to? He said, I think I should. 
And so they prayed together. And he wrote his, his own story in a little pamphlet later on, which you can still read. And he said this, All was joy, and not the least joyous was myself, even while the tears were chasing down my cheeks. And then he says this, This change made, now I was a Christian, I began seriously to consider how I could be useful in life. He never thought about that before. He'd just seen himself as, you know, one of the herd. Well, I'm just, just a mine worker. But now he knew that God loved him and God had, had ambitions for him and God wanted to use his life to the full. I seriously began to consider how could I be useful. <laughs> and that's what led him into the trade unions and to working for justice and to, to, to caring for people he'd never cared for before. And when you become a Christian, that's what's supposed to happen, isn't it? That you start thinking about things that are excellent and praiseworthy. You start thinking about the different things that you ought to do with your life to make it as, 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 as powerful and effective as it possibly can be. And then your life starts going somewhere. So Paul has one more bit of advice, and you'll be glad to hear this. The last thing I'm going to do tonight, he says, Whatever you have learned or received or heard from me and seen in me, put it into practice, and the God of peace will be with you. And this last piece of advice is this. Meditating is important. Thinking about all of these things, focusing your thoughts on what can I do to become more gracious, more attractive, more loving, more fair, more just. That's important. But just thinking about it doesn't do it. Meditate and imitate. Look for people who are good examples. Look for things that you can learn from them. And Paul says, look, if you've learned anything from me, if you receive from me or seen in me something that's good, maybe you think, oh, that is important, that's wise, I need to employ it. Well, put it into practice. Don't just leave it in your head, as though I must really think about that one of these days. Do it. Start doing it. Because when you meditate and you imitate, that's when you start standing firm. Let's just pray for a second, shall we? And Steve, do you. So, Heavenly Father, thank you for all of the advice that Paul managed to pack into those few verses. Help us to stand firm in our relationships with one another, in real, honest love. Love that's strong enough to say the hard thing to one another when that's necessary, but also strong enough to nourish and enrich our lives mutually as we live in agreement for the sake of the gospel. We, help you, we pray that you help us, too, to stand firm in our emotions. Help us to deal with those things, those worries, those stray things that tend to, 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 to take us apart and leave us in bits. We don't need to be like that. You said so. And so we pray that you'll help us to train ourselves to whatever the situation, in everything, to take our prayers and our petitions straight to you and get the effect of the peace of God garrisoning about our hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. We pray too that you help us to stand firm in our ambitions, not to accept uh, substandard, second-rate Christianity, but to be on our toes to do the best we can, to serve you with all the power the Holy Spirit can provide, and to be the kind of people who make a difference in the years that we have, standing firm on our territory for you. We ask it for your namesake.